Daniel 7, you're going to see some things that are very similar to what we saw in Daniel chapter 2. You remember Daniel chapter 2 from last week. Nebuchadnezzar had this vision, this dream, this statue, had this head of gold. We know that to be Babylon. And then you'll remember the chest and the arms of silver, which we know divided kingdom, Medo-Persia kingdom. And then you'll remember you see the belly and the thighs of bronze, which we know to be Greece, and then finally these legs of iron, which were Rome, and then coming out from that, there's these nations. But remember, what we were really intended to see was this stone not cut with hands. We know that to be Christ, this man who is God, of a, is of divine origin, and he comes and he shatters that, 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 uh, that statue that these nations are destroyed by Christ, and he ushers in the only eternal and the only indestructible kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. Well, we're going to see a lot of similarities in this dream of Daniel this, week, uh, this morning, but we also see some differences. Last week, you got to see uh, a perspective of human history from a pagan. So that was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This week, we get God's perspective of human history. Last week, see, the, the, world, the world's perspective of human history is a beautiful statue, an impressive statue. God's view of human history is a, a turbulent sea with ravenous beasts coming out of it, of these beasts that have power but no moral conscience. And it's a, really a horrific picture. And so you get some differences there in the vision. It's also different contextually because uh, you see here that in chapter 7 and moving forward in Daniel, we're not going through all of Daniel, but in Daniel chapter 7 all the way to chapter 12, you move into a section that's prophetic in nature. So Daniel chapters 1 through 6 is just Daniel uh, giving us uh, his account of the exile and his account of his, him and his buddies in exile. But chapter 7 moving forward is prophetic in nature. It's God letting Daniel and Israel in on what he's about to do in the future. And this is one of the blessings of being God's people. God's people, God's children, God lets us in on not only what he is doing, but what, will, what he will do. You remember Abraham in Genesis, Abraham, before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, God says, he's my friend. Should I not let him in on what I'm about to do? And so God lets Abraham in on the judgment that he's about to bring, and it modifies Abraham's present life, and he becomes very evangelistic, and he prays that God would save his people. Well, that's the blessing of being part of God's people, that with Israel, God lets them in on what he's going to do in the future. And with the church today, God lets us in on what he's going to do. And the precision of God of what he predicts here is just absolutely astounding and further demonstrates the divinity and, and, and the deity nature of his word. We also see contextually that in chapter 7, we're no longer moving chronologically through the book. So I know many of you, and I want to encourage you to do so, read all of Daniel, read through it. But you'll note there in chapter 7, we're no longer moving chronologically because it says right there in verse 1, in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. If you look at chapter 6, verse 28, I know some of this is just detail stuff, but in chapter 6, verse 28, you see the reign of Darius. The reign of Darius comes after Belshazzar. So we're looking back. In fact, chapter 7 actually corresponds with chapter 5. Okay, so Daniel here, and what I would say is that Daniel is in a place of discouragement. So Daniel did his best to serve Nebuchadnezzar, and God moved in Nebuchadnezzar's life in an amazing way. We're not sure if Nebuchadnezzar actually converted to 
uh, to the Lord. But we do know he acknowledged the one true God. Then he got a little arrogant. What did God do? Um, God humbled him in a great and mighty way. We'll talk about that a little later. And then he looked finally back to God and God raised him um, uh, back up again. And so uh, Daniel has seen God move in Nebuchadnezzar's life and he's probably thinking, wow, this is pretty amazing. Nebuchadnezzar's becoming an ally. Maybe he's gonna be converted and he's gonna help us and he's gonna end the exile and he's gonna let us go back to Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden what happens? Nebuchadnezzar's gone and Belshazzar comes. And he says, boy, I built such a good rapport with Nebuchadnezzar and God was doing a great work. And now comes this guy and Belshazzar's far worse than Nebuchadnezzar ever was. And what we find out is that Belshazzar completely forgets all about Daniel. So Daniel had been in a position of authority and power and now he really loses all authority and power and he's completely forgotten and he's probably wondering, what in the world, God, are you doing? And guess what God does right here in Daniel chapter seven? He gives him a vision, he gives him a dream to encourage him that I am still in control, that I am sovereign over history. So God comes to him to encourage Daniel, to encourage Israel, and ultimately to encourage us by means of a reminder of his ultimate authority and sovereignty and that Christ is king. So with that in mind, let's just begin by reading verses one through eight. We'll pray and we'll start to work our way through it. Look with me, chapter seven, verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Let's pray together. God, we, we ask you to bless the study of your word this morning. Um, God, there's so much about this that uh, we desperately need you to interpret for us. God, I pray that I wouldn't muddy the water on what I believe you make very plain and very clear to us. So God, make this simple. Help us to understand it by means of your spirit, God. Help us to understand the truths, the principles that we're intended to see here. And more than this, I pray that you'd help us to apply these principles to our lives so that we might be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, God, I pray that they would see Jesus as king. And God, I pray today that they would be overwhelmed by this king who gave up his life, and they would run to him and know his salvation and his freedom and his forgiveness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you see there in verse 2, we kind of get a picture of God's view, his perspective of human history. And history, what we find out, is not a study of peace. 
That history is a study of, of violence and turbulence and conflict. That history is a study of nations rising and falling. And these nations are here described as, as ravenous beasts. That they have incredible and immense power, but they have mo no moral conscience. And they only desire to devour more and more nations. And not only is history turbulent and violent, but what Daniel is learning here is that the future is turbulent and violent. I think Daniel's probably hoping that maybe after the exile, when they're allowed to go back to Israel, that the world will be a nice and peaceful place. And the message of God here is no, everything will not be peaceful. That this world will not be a nice place, not until Christ comes. The message is abundantly clear that man and nations will not bring about some utopia here on earth. I think the common thought for us is often that if we could just get this government in place or if this nation was destroyed or if that person got elected or this legislation was passed, then somehow we could get peace on earth. And the message here is clear. The solution to man's problems will not come from man. What we need is divine intervention. No leader, no politician, no man, no nation will usher in utopia. In fact, the word utopia means no place. It doesn't exist. Not this side of heaven. But what we see here is the same progression moving forward. You see the same progression that we saw in Daniel 2. We see the, the lion with, with wings. And we know this to be Babylon and then it talks about the wings being plucked and then lifted up from the ground. And what does that remind you of? It reminds you of Nebuchadnezzar. We didn't really study it, but you'll remember Nebuchadnezzar is the guy who looked out over all that he had and looked, like, looked at what he had done. And he basically said, look at what I've accomplished. And he said, in essence, I am God. And what did God do? God humbled him. His mind was taken from him and he was made to eat grass like a cow. And guess what God, God's message to Nebuchadnezzar was? You are nothing apart from me. But if you will look to me, you will return to your senses. I mean, man has always desired to make himself out to be God. See, I think the thought of man has always been that if we could just reject God, reject his rules, get him out of our life, then we can live any way we want to live, and then we'll be free, and then we'll find fulfillment, and then we'll be strong, and then we'll be mighty. And the message of God through Nebuchadnezzar is, no, when you reject God and his laws and his word, when you reject his truth, you are therefore rejecting reality. And when you separate yourself from truth and therefore reality, guess what you become? You become insane. That's the picture of Nebuchadnezzar. You don't want me, you don't want my truth, then you'll go insane. You return to me, you'll return to your senses. Do you see what's happened in our nation? We rejected the truth of God, therefore we rejected reality. And guess where we're living? We're living in an insane asylum. That's where we're at, that's what it's come to. Because we've rejected the truth of God's word. That's the message through Nebuchadnezzar. That's the message through Babylon. And then you see another nation. You see this next beast, it's a bear. It's raised up on one side. It corresponds to the chest and the arms that we saw of silver in Daniel chapter two. This is a divided kingdom. It says this bear is raised up on one side, meaning one of these nations will be stronger than the other. This is the Medo-Persian kingdom, and we know that the Persians were stronger than the Medes. They overcame them. It also tells us that it has three ribs in its mouth. Guess what? Babylon had three provinces, and they were devoured by the Medo-Persian kingdom. 
And then you see the next beast, which is a leopard with wings. It's, it's going to be this nation with great speed and strength, and it's going to spread out over the, all the world. And this is obviously Greece. This is Alexander the Great as he spread out his kingdom all over the world. And it tells us that this, this beast has four heads. Well, guess what? When Alexander the Great died, if you know your history, you know he never married, never had any kids, and he left his nation. It was divided up before, between four of his generals. And it would have four heads, and we see it displayed here. In fact, we're going to talk more about two of them, which are incredibly um, important to us as we move forward. One was the Seleucids in the north, which is modern-day Syria, and the Ptolemies in the south, which is uh, Egypt. And later they would have what you call the uh, Syro-Egyptian wars. And guess what's right in the middle between Syria and Egypt? A little piece of ground known as Israel. And everybody wants it. And they pay the price in the midst of all that. We're going to see this moving forward. It's amazing to me today what you see going on in the Middle East. Listen, forgive Israel if they're a little quick with the trigger when somebody starts shooting bombs at them. Because their history is everybody's wanted to take over that piece of ground. And they have a face tax from everybody. And so um, we're going to see that moving forward. But isn't it amazing the precision of God giving future events? This is amazing. I mean, God, with very tight provision, tells Daniel what is going to happen in the future. And it occurs just as God said. Listen, only God does this. Only God is able to talk about the future as if it had already occurred in the past which is another demonstration of the divine nature of this book. And then we see the next beast. It's a different beast. It's a dreadful and terrifying beast. We know this. It corresponds with Daniel chapter 2. Uh, this is Rome. And then we see coming out from this beast, just as we saw coming out from the legs of iron, we saw the feet and the ten toes. Now we see ten horns coming out. This is new, new information. We're getting more detailed. We'll continue to get more detailed as we go. And this has not yet occurred. The rest of this is historical. It's all occurred. This has not yet occurred in history. And then you see another horn, a little horn, with eyes of a man. This is a man. It's not a nation. It's a singular power. And he will rise up among the ten. And he is uttering great boasts. He's setting himself up to be God. He blasphemes. Uh, he is anti-Christ. And we're going to learn more about him. In fact, most of chapter 8 deals with him. But, but don't get too bogged down. What is the picture so far that God has given us in this, this vision? The picture that we see thus far is that the world is a terrible place. It's one nation after another devouring each other as these ravenous beasts. It's one violent kingdom to another violent kingdom to another violent kingdom with no real hope of justice or peace. And what if God just left it there? World's a terrible place, one violent kingdom after another, no hope of justice or peace. God bless you, y'all have a great weekend. But amen, aren't you glad it doesn't just end there? Look with me, because it goes on. Look with me at verses nine through 10. It says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court set, and the books were opened. This is what you call divine intervention. The only hope of this world is that God will divinely intervene, and that's what occurs here. 
Uh, have you seen uh, Forrest Gump? You remember the part where Lieutenant Dan is cursing God on the boat? And then you remember what Forrest Gump says? And then God showed up. That's what's happening right here. You've got a violent and turbulent sea. Trouble is everywhere. Violent kingdoms rising and falling. They're setting themselves up against God. And then Daniel sees a throne above all other thrones. That there's a God above all these nations. And he's not competing with these other kings and kingdoms. This is not a 50-50 battle. This is not yin and yang. It's not a competition. This is a God who is sovereign above it all. And not only is he above it all and sovereign over it, he's in control of it all. And we get a picture of God, God the Father. And he's described here as the ancient of days, meaning he is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. His vesture is like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Be encouraged, some of you today. White hair is a picture in the Bible of great, great wisdom. I'm banking on that. Hopefully I'm growing in wisdom these days. But the picture here is that God is all-knowing and all-wise, that God is completely righteous and perfect with all wisdom. And his throne was ablaze with flames. That's a picture of purity that he rules and reigns with perfect wisdom and purity and a river of fire is flowing and coming out before him. In other words, he brings judgment. And it says thousands were attending him. That's the, the angelic realm, that he's the Lord of hosts and he delights in service. And myriads and myriads were before him. That's the nations. And then it says that the court sat and the books were opened and We're not exactly sure the specifics, but in some way, every person is going to stand before God and their life will pass before him. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, your life's going to pass before you in neon lights and you'll be exposed. Listen to me this morning. If you don't know Christ, what you need to be afraid of is not hell. If you don't know Christ, what you need to be afraid of is standing before a perfect, almighty God without the shed blood of Jesus Christ covering your sins. Scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So the court set, the books open, and then we see another scene. Look with me in verses 11 through 12. Then I kept looking because of the, the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. And its body was destroyed and given to a burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So Daniel, this, this, the books are open, the thrones are established. And, and he hears some kind of white noise in the background. This, this little horn is in the background kind of yapping like a little dog. And he's referred to here as the beast. And as we get into Revelation, he'll often be referred to as the beast. But this beast, this little horn, it's, it's Satan's little boy. And he gets the privilege of going head to head with Jesus Christ. It's a cage fight, mano e mano. And guess what? It is no battle at all. It's Revelation 19.20 that God takes this little yapping dog who sets himself up as strong and God destroys him just like that and throws him into the lake of fire and just like that, he gone. 
And the rest of the beast, dominion is taken away, but they get a little more time because God is gracious and merciful and he desires that none should perish. And by the way, are these nations still around? Their power's been reduced, but they're still around. Babylon, is it still around? Modern day Iraq. Is Persia still around? Iran's been reduced. Is Persia, Persia's Iran, is Greece still around? Still around, nice place. I hope to go there one day. They can't pay their bills. They've been reduced. We're not far behind. But they've been reduced. Rome, it's been reduced too. Can God do this? Take a nation that starts to think that they're greater than God and separate themselves from God and oppose God and God reduce them to nothing like that? See, I'm just glad we're America and nothing like that could ever happen to us. Because we better be warned as well. That's the warning of this. Then read with me in verses 13 through 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So we've seen Satan's little yapping dog. Now we see God's man, and he comes on the clouds of heaven. He's described here as the son of man. That's a term for Messiah. First time we see this in scripture is in Psalm 8. And David says, when I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, or the son of man that you should care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty, and you put all things in subjection to his feet. So you can just imagine Daniel's at a campfire and looking up at the stars with his sheep, and he says, God, in light of the vastness of your creation, why would you even think about us? But then he says, not only did you think about us, but you made us to rule. You gave us dominion over all the earth. And that was what man was intended to be. Man was intended to rule and to reign, to have dominion. That's what we were created to be, that the the man, the woman, kings and queens ruling over the earth. As the Puritans used to say, God's vice regents ruling in the stead of God. But today, are we ruling? Not as we should. Why? Because man sinned, didn't he? Man sinned. He fell. But you remember what happened right after he sinned in Genesis 3.15. What did God promise? You sinned. You messed everything up. Now you're not ruling and reigning. But God said, I'm going to send somebody. He's going to defeat sin, Satan, and death. And he'll make things right so that you can rule and reign with me again forever in my kingdom. Well, what a beautiful picture here. What we see here is the Son of Man, God's promised Messiah. He's the focus of your entire Bible. Do you understand this today as we study Daniel, as, as we just got finished with Genesis? Do you realize the, um, the Bible is a story of Jesus? The Bible is a story of Jesus from beginning to end. It's all about Christ. In the Old Testament, he's prophesied. Everything points to Christ. In the Gospels, he's revealed. In Acts, he's proclaimed. In the epistles, he's explained. And in Revelation, he returns. But the focus of our entire Bible is this son of man, the God-man, the beloved son who's presented before the father, and him, the father, is well-pleased. He's divine. He's God. He's perfect man. This is Jesus, the son of man. In fact, you remember in Mark 14, 62, 
The unity, uh, listen, if you don't study God's word and just stand in awe of who God is, then you're missing it. Man, this is beautiful. Mark 14, 62, Jesus is on trial. He's standing before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and they've had to pay false witnesses. Listen, if you were on trial today and we were trying to dig up dirt on you, nobody would probably have to pay false, false witnesses. We'd, you could do that to me. You could dig up some dirt if you wanted to. But with Jesus, they got to pay false witnesses. And guess what? They're false witnesses. Not even they can get their story straight. And they finally get upset and they get frustrated. And guess what Caiaphas does? He just comes right out and he asks Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Do you remember what Jesus says? He quotes this. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And those Jews knew their Old Testament. They knew Daniel chapter 7. And they knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ. You remember Caiaphas. He rent his clothes. And he says we got no further need of witnesses. This man blasphemes. He claims to be the Christ. Jesus claimed to be the Christ. Because he is the Christ. He is the son of man. And Christ arrives We see here in Daniel, he's presented before the Father and he's given authority to judge and to rule. He's given dominion and a kingdom. This is what we we talked about a little bit last week. This is the kingdom of God. It's not a nation. It's not a territory. It's not a geopolitical place. This is not just, the kingdom of God is not just another nation that rises out of the sea. This is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is already but not yet meaning the kingdom of God has come. It has come in the purpose, uh, person of Christ. You remember when Christ came, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. When Christ arrives, the kingdom comes, and he demonstrates his kingly authority and divine nature by the miracles he performs. He performed miracles like no one else. He performed miracles over demons and disease, over nature. He calmed the winds and the waves with a word. He raised men and women back from the dead. And in the ultimate, in the ultimate demonstration of his kingly authority, divine nature, and power, he was resurrected from the dead. See, the beauty of Christ, how does he establish his kingdom? Not like these other nations. Other nations of the world, they establish their kingdoms with bullets and bombs, but not Jesus. You know how he established his kingdom? By his sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross for your sins. Folks, that's a good king. He has come. Not only has he come, but the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming through the proclamation of the gospel that every time an individual acknowledges their sin and bends the knee to Christ and submits to him as king, they become a part of his kingdom and part of his army, and the kingdom of God grows. Every time a person trusts in Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, they're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, and the kingdom grows. You remember before Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he tell the disciples? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you know what he's saying to the disciples? As you go out to make disciples, remember this, everywhere you go, I'm king. Listen to me this morning, no matter what office you go into on Tuesday morning or tomorrow morning or whenever you go, know this, Christ is king right there in that office. His kingly authority might not be demonstrated in the language or the culture, but make no mistake about it, he's king. Whatever school you go into now or in this fall, just know this, 
Jesus is king. Whatever city you go into, just make sure you know this week, Jesus is king. And his kingdom is growing. Despite this persecution that exists around the world, this is the beauty of this. You cannot stop his kingdom from growing. Jesus said, I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. His kingdom has come, his kingdom is coming, and one day his kingdom will fully, finally, and visibly come, and it will be universal, and it will be eternal. That's the kingdom that Daniel uh, was a part of. That's the kingdom to which we belong. Then look at verses 15 through 18. It says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. I love Daniel. He, he, he saw this vision and he's distressed. He just honestly he said, I was distressed. And he sees someone there. We're not exactly sure who, but he asks him, what's the meaning of all this? <laughs> I thought this week that's exactly how I've felt as I've been studying this. I'm distressed. God, give me some meaning here. And God's answer, you know, I love this. God summarizes it for Daniel. He summarizes it for us because if we're not careful, we get caught up in things that don't really matter. Because Daniel's going to ask, hey, uh, can you tell me about the little horn? I, I want to know about the little horn. Tell me about the ten horns. Isn't that what we do? God, tell me about the horn. Tell me about the little horns. And God says, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. This is the summary. This is the brass tacks. There's four beasts. There's four kingdoms. But there's a fifth kingdom. And it's eternal. And it's indestructible. And the saints of the Mohai, they get that kingdom. Isn't that good? So you know what he's saying? Here's the summary. Don't get too alarmed. Kingdoms rise. Kingdoms fall. But there's a kingdom that is eternal and indestructible. And if you know Christ, you get that kingdom. So he said, all this other stuff, don't get too caught up. Focus on that. But then what about the consummation? Look at this. We're going to read all of it. Look at verses 19. I promise you, not long. Hang with me. Verse 19 through 28. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns which were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which there were uh, three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking. The horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Isn't that a frightening scene? Until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Most High. And he will intend to, to make alterations in times and in law, and they'll be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness 
of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and, his, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Is Daniel here, just like we would have done, he wants more information. Give me more information. And Daniel gets more information, and we'll get more specific. There's a lot here, and we're going to get more specific as we go, so you've got to come back next week. But notice here as we close, notice that last phrase. He says, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming to me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And when you study that, you first, your first thought is, is, why is he alarmed and why is his face pale? I mean, you would think God just told him, we win. God has just told him, listen, I'm going to defeat all this. Christ, he's, he's king. He's got all the dominion. He's going to rule and reign. And he's going to give the kingdom to you guys, the, the saints of the Most High. And that sounds good. And you'd think that Daniel would go away saying, "Woohoo, yeah, we win. This is good. That's not how he walks away. He's alarmed. He's frightened. That's what it means when his face goes, goes pale. He's frightened. He's distressed. And the question is, why is he distressed? Why is he alarmed? I believe he's alarmed and distressed because Daniel learns that the Son of Man, while one day he will come and put down all his enemies and he will rule and reign, what he learns here is that before that happens, the Son of Man will be greatly opposed. We see in the verse 25, that little, little horn we know he's a defeated foe, but before he is fully and finally put down, and we see here apparently for three and a half years, he is given the ability to do, he's unfettered just to go after the saints, and it says that he will wear out the saints. Folks, that is persecution. That is severe persecution, meaning he kills anybody that opposes him and does not bend the knee to him. And it says that he makes alterations to times and the laws. We don't know. There's a lot of speculation about what that means. But in essence, everybody agrees that it means that he opposes God and he opposes God's laws. See, the good news here, the good news is that Christ is coming. And one day evil will be fully and finally put down. But the bad news is, the disturbing, the alarming news is, is that that has not yet happened. And the message that disturbed Daniel is that while we win in the end and while we get to rule and reign as we were intended to with Christ, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's the message. You know, remember, as I said earlier, when God lets us in on future events, it's not simply to puff our heads up full of knowledge so that we got our charts and our graphs and we know everything and we're, we're all smart and we're geniuses because we got it all figured out. And that's never the intention of God giving us information about last events. It's always given so that we can change and modify our present lives in accordance with what God is doing. He says, change us now, to change our hearts, to change our perspective, to change our motivation. So let me just give you some quick lessons that you can't miss as we close. Number one, the kingdoms and nations of this world are temporary. We learned it last week. We're learning it again. The kingdoms and nations of this world are temporary, including ours. 
They're all temporary. They come and go. They rise and fall. And guess what? God is sovereign over it all. Secondly, we learn here, don't be caught off guard by persecution. Don't be caught off guard by persecution. God has told us the kingdoms of this world will always oppose Christ and the people of his kingdom. And the persecution of God's people as we get closer to the end, the message here is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Which is why we pray for revival. Can God bring revival today? Do you believe that? That God and his spirit can intervene in our world today and transform everything. Yes, he can. And I'm telling you, God is moving today. And he is raising up a generation of young people who love Jesus and their full allegiances to him. And guess what? God's sending them to the four corners of the earth and the four corners of this nation with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is raising up young men and women who are bold in Jesus. And they're going into their business places and their workplaces and they're serving God on the mission field. And it's exciting. And if you've not heard about it, come talk to me because I'll introduce you to some of them. They will challenge you to walk more boldly with Jesus Christ. God is at work today. But the message here is that rings over and over and over and over again is that the hope of our nation is not found in a politician, a person, a legislative branch, the Senate or the House or even a piece of legislation. It is only found in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not involved in politics and all these things. We should be. But first and foremost, the greatest passion of our life is that our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers come to know the good news of Jesus Christ and come to know the good and kingly reign of Christ in their hearts. As we move forward, if we're really serious, because I hear a lot of people talking about revival and wanting to see revival in our nation. You know what? If we're really serious about it, we'd be hitting our knees in prayer every day, pleading with God to move. You know what else we'd do? We'd be sharing the gospel that's how God brings revival. He humbles his people. They seek him in prayer. And then they become very bold. And normally it's not just the pulpits. It's the people out in the world sharing the gospel. And God brings revival. We pray for that. But, but never forget. Never forget that the overall trajectory of this world is downward. The Bible is very pessimistic when it comes to this world. You realize that one day this whole deal is coming down. The, the elements will melt with intense heat. The whole deal is coming down. So we keep an eternal perspective, don't we? Three, like Daniel, we lead excellent lives and we stand firm. Lead excellent lives and stand firm. We're a people of convictions. So first of all, we seek to be the best citizens wherever we live. We ought to be the best citizens of this nation. Daniel was. He existed in Babylon. He served Babylon. He was the best he could be for Babylon. Then all of a sudden, it's Persia. Guess what? He's the best in Persia. He becomes a blessing to those people, and he points people to Christ. But guess what else? Daniel had a conviction. He may have served King Nebuchadnezzar. He may have served Belshazzar. But Daniel never forgot that his ultimate allegiance was to the Lord. So you remember, Daniel, he'll bend on a lot of things. But he will not bend the knee to another god. 
Jesus was his king. We'll do our best in this world. We ought to be the best citizens. But our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. He is king. He's king, meaning I cannot invent a new meaning of marriage. Can't do it. I cannot reinvent human sexuality. Why? Because Jesus is king. People ask us, why why are you so mean, horrible people? Why can't you just let people be? Here's why. Because Jesus is king. People look at us like we got three heads. Do you guys really believe this? Do you really believe that Jesus is king? You bet we do. We believe he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the only reason you're taking a breath right now. Because he's king. He has all dominion. But get this. He's got all dominion. But guess what he's doing today? He's pursuing you. If you do not know Jesus as king this morning, he's after you. And he does not overtake you by means of force. He just comes to you demonstrating that he is a king who lays down his life for your sins and says, come bend the knee and find my freedom and forgiveness. Let me reign in your life and let me show you what real life looks like. I'm telling you this morning, if you don't know him as king of your life, he's a great king. Freedom is not found by rejecting Christ. It's found in submitting your life to him. You know what else is good about this king? He's, accept, he's accessible. I, I don't know about you. Presidents never invited me to the White House for coffee. Never done it. Never got invited. Maybe he's invited you. I know. I couldn't even get past the gates. They wouldn't let me in. Never been invited. Queen of England never invited me over for tea. Never invited me in. Do you know what today? The king of all kings. The Lord of all lords, wants fellowship and friendship with you. He wants you to come sit with him and find a friend and find a savior that's unlike anything this world will offer. He's a great king. He's a sovereign king. He's a good king. He's an accessible king. And he says to you today, come to me, all you who are weary. You tired? You worn out by the world? You worn out by Satan? Because that's what Satan done. He'll, He'll wear you out. He said, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. For I'm gentle and lowly in spirit. In me you'll find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I I was reading this, I was reminded of Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell, um, you remember Chariots of Fire. Um, 1924, he had just won the Olympics. And uh, at the height of his Olympic career, in fact, in the 19th, he said that he hadn't even really trained for the Olympics. They asked him how he won. He said, for the first half of the race, I gave every ounce of energy I had. And for the second half of the race, the Lord carried me. He won. He's this national hero of Scotland. He's like the Michael Jordan of Scotland. We can't even begin to comprehend how popular this guy was. And at the height of his fame, at the height of his career, guess what he did? 
He left Scotland to go to China to serve as a missionary, to be a teacher, and to tell children about King Jesus. And he was leaving Scotland. This guy was incredibly popular, and he was leaving Waverley Station in Edinburgh in the shadow of this great castle, and people, thousands upon thousands, flocked to the train station to see him leave. And you know what I pictured this week as I was thinking about this? I pictured Phil Mickelson coming up on the 18th and, and people just engulfing him. That, that, that's, that was Eric Liddell leaving the tra- People just crowded around, thousands upon thousands. And they were begging him to give a speech. And he deflected the attention He said this, he said, all he said, he said, this is our motto. Christ for the world. Because the world needs Christ. And then you know what he did? He led them in a hymn. Can you imagine? Can you imagine thousands and thousands of people at a train station and all of a sudden he began to sing and the crowd started singing with him. I'd love to have been there. And this is what they sang. It's a hymn. It wasn't very familiar to me, but boy, I started reading it this week and it is powerful. This was the hymn. It goes, it goes like this. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretches from shore to shore till suns shall rise and set no more. Blessings abound where'er he reigns. The prisoner leaps to loose his chains. The weary find eternal rest and all the sons of want are blessed. People in realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song. And infant voices shall proclaim their early blessing on his name. Let every creature rise and bring blessing and honor to our king. Angels descend with songs again. And earth repeats the loud amen. To our king be the highest praise. Rising through eternal days, just and faithful, he shall reign. Jesus shall reign. He was king then. He's king now. Let's bend our lives, our marriages, our homes, and our families to the kingly rule of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, We stand in awe of you this morning and who you are. You are the ancient of days. You are sovereign over all of history. Nations rise, nations fall. And you are sovereign over it all. And you have given all authority and dominion to one known as the Son of Man. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he establishes kingdom on the basis of his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. And God, I just pray if there's anybody here today, God, that doesn't know you, never trusted in you, 
The Bible says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glorious face of Christ. God, by your supernatural power, peel back the blinders today so that they would see Christ the King, the King who loves them, the King who died for them, and the King who's coming back one day to rule and to reign, and those who know him will rule and reign with him. I pray that they would trust in him this morning as their only hope of salvation. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that our reverence and awe of who you are would be deepened this morning. Our trust in you would be deepened. And that we would be encouraged in the midst of a difficult and chaotic day when it seems that everything is out of control, we would be reminded that Jesus is king. It would transform our business. It would transform how we read the news. And it would motivate us to share the gospel with those who don't know him so that they would know that Jesus is king and that they would know his salvation and not his condemnation and judgment. Lord, help us to be your people, your subjects serving you with joyful and willing hearts in light of what you've done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.